There's an old adage that says you can't judge a book by its cover. And I was never more aware of the truth of that saying as I was at a conference that I attended in Boston back in the 80s. That was before I was in pastoral ministry. And the conference was one on neurology and all aspects of neurology. And the lineup of speakers there was just a who's who of people from all over the world. That's why I flew from here up there to attend that particular conference. But I really came to see one particular fellow, a guy named Jan Yerot. He was from Czechoslovakia. And Dr. Yerot was a professor at the University of Prague and was considered at the time to be one of the world's leading authorities on the subjects of the biomechanics of the cervical spine. Interesting topic to most of you, I can see. (laughs) But because of the political situation at the time, this was before the Iron Curtain came down, this was his first public appearance outside of an Iron Curtain country. So there was considerable anticipation regarding his presentation. A lot of excitement was in the room knowing that he would be there. So when I arrived at the conference hall that day, I started searching the thousands of faces that were there to see if I could pick out his. There wasn't internet at the time, at least not for me there wasn't, but I I did have a picture of him, so I had a decent idea of what he looked like. And after the first morning session, I looked up and there he was, not 10 feet away from me. And since I came to, to see him, and I came actually to meet him if I had any possibility of doing so at all, I started to approach him and introduce myself. I locked eyes with him, and I smiled, and then I just kind of thought, well, he doesn't want to talk to me. So I turned and sat down. Well, as I sat down for the next session, in these conferences, you have morning speakers and afternoon speakers. As I sat down for the next session, lo and behold, he keeps making eye contact with me. He comes and sits two seats down from me. I thought, well, this is interesting. When it was over, I almost spoke to him at that time because there's nobody sitting in between us. And I was going to introduce myself to him, say how much I appreciated his work in the field of the biomechanics of the cervical spine and as it relates to neurological conditions in people of all ages. And we made eye contact again, and then I just thought, well, he doesn't want to talk to me. As the third speaker came up, he came and sat down right next to me. So I thought, well, I'm supposed to talk to this guy. And I did. And we had the most wonderful conversation. I did introduce myself. I talked about his work, how much I appreciated. He had very heavily accented English, but he did speak English. And we had the most wonderful conversation. And then I looked down. And I noticed his shoes. And his shoes were tennis shoes, older tennis shoes that were painted black. And then I looked at his suit pants. And his suit was a polyester suit that in the United States you probably couldn't buy in a store, but you, you could probably pick one up at, say, the Goodwill or Salvation Army. It was clean, and it was pressed, but it certainly wasn't what I expected from a world-renowned figure in his field like that. He sensed what was going on. I guess he caught my eye, and very graciously he let me out of the situation, and he said, well, Bruce... In my country, the remuneration for our services is not quite what it's like here. And we parted, and he told me he had to leave after that session, after his session, which was the one coming up. And he was escorted back to the airport in Boston and then back on to Europe by two security agents of his country. 
But I thought when I was sitting there in my ballet shoes and my zania suit that something's wrong with this picture. He ought to be the one dressed like that. I ought to be the one in the polyester and the painted tennis shoes. It just didn't seem right. And I thought of that phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover because if no one knew him, if you didn't know who he was and you sat down there next to him, you might ask what he was doing there. How did he get into such a prestigious conference in the first place? And he was the primary speaker at that conference. Smartest guy in the room, probably, in a room of pretty smart people. But I learned then, and it's been reinforced with me many times since then, that you can't judge a book by its cover. All day long, I couldn't get that suit out of my mind. It's been 25, 30, not quite 30 years, but 25 plus years, and I still remember that suit, still remember what it looked like. And there was nothing wrong with it. I'm not putting him down for wearing the suit. I'm just saying somebody like him you would have figured would have been dressed in Armani or Zania or at Oxford Row from London, something like that. He certainly deserved to. But you can't judge a book by its cover. I think Paul in Corinth was dealing with a similar situation, although he was the guy that had the older suit on, to follow through with my analogy. He had come to a city that was well known for its philosophers and its debaters and its sophists, a city that was known for great oration. Oration was a public sport. It was a, it was a spectator sport in Corinth. And here he was preaching a simple but profound message in a style that did not particularly impress a Greek audience. So one of the first things that Paul has to establish is not just that a book should not be judged by its cover, but that before they're going to be in a, in a position to really appreciate and benefit from the life-giving message that he was bringing them, they're going to have to jettison that idea that was so prevalent in their culture that form was either more important or equally as important as function. There is a commercial value in the way a product is packaged, no doubt about it. There are certain hamburger chains that if they didn't have the most incredible advertising, nobody would ever go to them. But they do. So I'm not saying there's not a commercial value in the idea of packaging. There certainly is. And we all appreciate it very much when the Word of God is packaged in a palatable way, in the best possible way. It makes it much easier to follow. But we must be careful not to be taken in or so taken in by attractive packaging that we're also taken in by a faulty message. And that's the cultural context in 1 Corinthians. As chapter 2 opens, Paul clearly states the rhetorical strategy that he applied when he first came to Corinth. How is he to handle this? When these are people that judge a book by, their, by its cover, and they're judging Paul as to not being quite up to speed with the other great public speakers of the time. So he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 1 through 5, as we read that passage. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. One of the issues that any public speaker must face is the issue of knowing one's audience. And the same is true of those who proclaim the Word of God. It's, of course, much easier to preach to your home crowd. If a pastor's been around for any length of time at all, he should know the church pretty well that he's preaching to, the people in the church. He's got a decent idea of the church's strengths and its weaknesses, its demographics, and the particular problems that any, any local body might face. He also knows what works and what doesn't, when to inject humor, for example, and when to avoid it. I had this driven home to me in a very special way on my second trip to India. The Sunday before I left here, I used a story that was as humorous as any story I've ever told, and you guys laughed hilariously. I got to India and used the same story, told it even better because it was the second time I was telling it, <laughs> through an interpreter. And I got to the punchline, and there was nothing. Nothing. Not even a little bit. Now, you know you're in big trouble with a foreign audience or any audience when you have to speak through the interpreter to tell them that in my country that would have been funny. <laughs> they didn't think it was funny at all. So I learned you don't use humor in foreign contexts. I didn't know my audience as well as I thought I did, but I'll never make that mistake. Again, on that same trip, I was given the responsibility of teaching the portion of the conference whereby some issues in pneumatology were discussed. And on one of the last sessions, I had a session to teach the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the issue of tongues. What I did know, though, I did know that two-thirds of the audience were Pentecostal in their theology. And that was helpful to me. Because while I still presented the truth, I didn't alter the message at all. I was sensitive in the way that I presented it. I presented the truth, absolutely the truth. We went straight through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. I exegeted that passage for him. I told him all about the aorist tense there. They were pastors. They could handle that. We studied it thoroughly. I told him that tongues were never the normal and necessary sign for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It had its place in its time, but it was never the normal and necessary sign. I walked him right through it lovingly and gently because I knew the audience. When I was finished, they applauded. Those Pentecostal pastors applauded this presentation. Only one of the whole session they applauded. But it was helpful to know the audience because I could be sensitive in how it was presented and presented in love in a way that was not going to be offensive to them but still teach them the truth. So we must know our audience. When Paul was new in Corinth, he apparently had researched the cultural context there and he was sensitive to it. This was a culture that was highly competitive when it came to rhetorical skills. Now, we're a culture that's highly competitive as well. Not so much in who's the best public speaker. But we're a highly competitive culture, so we can understand that. That's the Corinthian culture. They were highly competitive when it came to public speaking ability. And it was a culture that did judge a book by its cover. They were very interested in the outside, not so much in what the message itself was, they were more interested in how a message was presented. And Paul comes along, 
And he's not going to play that game. It's clear from a reading, a plain reading of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that Paul did not consider himself to be a great public speaker. He didn't feel like he could match skills with the Greek public speakers or rhetoricians. He didn't think so at all. So he's not going to stoop to that level and diminish his message by getting into a public speaking competition with them. He knew that his message was of infinitely more value. And it was infinitely more powerful. And he also knew that he had an advantage. I hope you picked it up from our reading. He had an advantage that the Greek philosophers did not. And that's the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was with him and the Holy Spirit was with the audience. Now this doesn't mean, we shouldn't take this to mean that Paul wasn't eloquent. I don't think that's really the case. He surely was. But he didn't want to get into an eloquence contest to validate his message. And thereby take away from the message that he preached. You see, he wasn't going to do it on their terms. He knew he had to break through this cultural mold and allow the power of the message itself to shine. Paul's style in his first visit to Corinth is intentional. It's not an accident. In verse 2 he says, I determined. This was an intentional choice on his part. Back to verse 1 again, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of the Word of God. Now, some of your Bibles may say mystery there, where the word testimony is. There are some ancient Greek manuscripts that read mystery, but the better reading is probably just like the New American Standard says, and that's testimony. Paul is clear here. He had no intention of playing the rhetoric game. The message was too important for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, Paul had declared that it was the cross, which was foolishness to the philosophers, but was the wisdom of God to those who believe, and the power of his message was in the cross of Jesus Christ. In sensitivity to the culture, he wanted to make sure that he didn't diminish the message by going along with this prevailing idea that the value of an idea can be judged solely on the basis of the quality of the packaging. Now, this is something we can understand. Because our culture is a very packaging-oriented culture. Millions and millions of dollars are spent on research for what's going to sell the best. Which colors, how should we package this, where it stands on the shelf. We're, We're a culture that's very interested in packaging as well. And Paul realized that he couldn't play that game, or he shouldn't play that game. Because if he gets up there and he's relying totally upon eloquence with them, someone could clearly come along and say, well, listen, you're not quite as eloquent as him. I think I'm going with that view over there. Paul says, no, that's not the way I came to you. When I came to you, I didn't come and participate in an eloquence contest. I came to you proclaiming the word of God. In verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I want you to be clear about this. It's not that Paul is intentionally making the message boring. That would be sinful. I never forget one of the most impactful seminary classes that I ever had was a, with a, by a fellow by the name of Howard Hendricks. Some of you know him well. Prof. Hendricks is a, basically retired now, but he wasn't at the time. This was toward the end of his tenure there. And he got up before all of us, and most of you that know Prof. Hendricks know that he's a very eloquent man himself, maybe one of the most eloquent people the Dallas Seminary ever produced. 
Coming from him, it meant a lot. But he said, listen, men, it is a sin to make the preaching of the Word of God boring. It is the most exciting subject in the world. And some of you seem to have a gift at taking the most exciting subject in the world and turning it into one of the most boring subjects in the world. That's not what Paul's doing here. That's not what he's arguing for. He's not saying dry is better. He's just saying, I'm not going to participate in this eloquence contest. I'm going to let the power of the Word speak through. And the power of the, of the Holy Spirit shine through. And that's what he does here. And that's why in verse 2, he returns to the message of the previous chapter in explaining his emphasis. His emphasis is, uh, is on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If you want to have power in your message, it's got to be centered around Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful preachers in the history of England was a man named Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon told his students that the way he designed his sermon is that every sermon had to intersect with the cross and Jesus Christ at some point, no matter what it was talking about. Because it's central and foundational, and that's where the power is. Some people try to, Christ, to preach Christianity without Christ. They try to preach Christianity without the cross. And when they do that, all they have is an ethical system. And there are churches in Houston today that are preaching a very fine ethical system. But there's no power in their message at all. And that's why many of their adherents, when times get tough, slip away into other ethical systems that might seem better to them at that particular moment. The power is not in the ethical system. The power is in the originator of the ethical system, and that being Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus Christ who has the ability to change lives. It's Jesus Christ who saved us based upon his work. It's him, it's his message and his work that's powerful. The message of the cross accurately presented is the most powerful message on the planet bar none nothing even is a close second it's the message that is powerful and at the same time i agree totally with dr Hendricks that there's no excuse to cloud the message by presenting it in any way other than a powerful way we do have our responsibilities but the power is in the gospel we considered it a few moments ago. For God so loved the world. That's powerful. That he gave his only begotten son. That's where the strength is in the Christian message. You can search far and wide and you'll see some similarities between the Christian faith and other faith when it comes to ethical norms. And sometimes people like say, well, there's not really a dime's bit of difference. I hate that phrase anyway. Anytime somebody says that, there's always a dime spit of difference. A quarter or a dollar is worth of difference, but there's more than a dime. It's always used inappropriately. But some people say there's not a dime's worth of difference between Christianity and these other faiths. Yes, there is. There is. There may not be a dollar's worth of difference in some of the ethical systems. There probably is more than that, but there's a great difference. And the difference is right here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It's the power of the cross. And that's what separates Christianity from everything else. You know, the study of world religions is not really that hard. We make it hard sometimes. There's Christianity and everything else. There are those who, who have a desire to be saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And everything else. You know, there are no other faiths that say that we're sinners and we need to come to this deity and we need to do it by humbling ourselves and accepting graciously a free gift of salvation from this deity. There aren't any. Sometimes people say, oh, all these things are, are confusing. No, they're not. There's one faith that says, by grace through faith you're saved. 
one. Islam doesn't do that. Judaism doesn't do it. In fact, if you look at it, most faiths are trying to be saved by works. That's really the bottom line. They're trying to be saved by the ethical system. And Paul is saying, it's not the way I'm saying it, and it's not the ethical system, it's Jesus Christ himself that is powerful. Now verse 3 gives us insight into the mindset of the apostle as he came to Corinth the first time. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. We tend to think of Paul as someone who's unflappable. This image I have in my head of Paul is that nothing gets to him. Nothing bothered him. Well, here he says, yeah, it did. He was a bit nervous when he came to Corinth for the first time. The term weakness there probably refers to a physical weakness. We can't say for sure, but probably a physical weakness. But the second two terms, which are unique to Paul, are unique here in Paul. Fear and, fear and much trembling, that's the only time he uses it. Apparently it means in great humility. He was very concerned when he came. This little tidbit of information, I think, gives encouragement to all of us who find ourselves in positions where we get a little nervous about presenting the gospel or talking to someone about Jesus or even talking to another Christian about theology. Sometimes we do that. We can realize Paul was nervous too, but the difference between Paul and some of the rest of us is he worked through his nervousness. That's what successful people do in a lot of areas of life. A lot of people are nervous, but they get out and do it anyway. And that's what Paul did, and it's encouraging to me. In verse 4, Paul gets to the heart of the, mess, uh, the matter. In my message, in my preaching, we're not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. His reliance was not upon his own skill. And I'm sure he had skills. But he didn't rely upon his own skills, but upon the power of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers both the one that's speaking and the one that's listening. It's a spiritual transaction, if you will. And without the Holy Spirit... There is nothing transacted of a beneficial nature, of an ultimately beneficial nature. Without the Holy Spirit's ministry, nothing good's going to happen. The Spirit's ministry is incredibly powerful. People ask me sometimes, how did you get into ministry? What made you think you should go into ministry? Well, I've been thinking about it for several years. Actually, I've been thinking about it since 1979. I successfully fended it off until 1993. I say that tongue-in-cheek. But the first time it came into my mind was 1979. Well, in the mid-'80s, I was asked by my brother to do his brother-in-law's funeral. A guy named Bubba. Died at 30 years old of a heart condition. And I told my brother, Tom, I said, I don't know if I can do that. Because, I mean, I cry at funerals that are on TV, you know, in the movies. I mean, I can't make it through one of those things. You know, terms of endearment, Kevin Costner playing catch with his dad at the end of field of dreams, so like that. I said, I don't know if I could do it. He said, well, they really want you to do it. So I agreed. I said, okay. I prayed about it, and I prayed about it, and I prayed about it, and I got there, and my, and my heart was right here in my throat. It was just ready to come all out. So I thought, you know, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I heard this technique before. I'm going to pick a few people in the audience. I'm going to pick my brother and my sister-in-law in the back, and I'm going to speak to them. And I'm not going to look at the widow in the front row, and I'm sure not going to look at Bubba's mama and his daddy. I'm going to keep my eyes completely away from his mama because I thought that, I'd just lose it. Then I started preaching that funeral. My first one to ever do. So I had, I had rehearsed it and I would practiced it. But I started preaching it and I looked at my brother and my sister-in-law and they were very comforting. And then I just felt, and I'm, you know me, I'm not, I'm not this way usually, but, but I just felt the Holy Spirit's presence moving me along. And so I looked right down at Melanie, his wife. And I said the words of comfort to her. 
And I thought, let's go for it. And I looked right straight at his mama. And I told her all about the comfort of Jesus Christ and why Bubba was in heaven right then. I was able to look at his father. And actually, I spent the entirety of my message looking at those three people. And I did just fine. And then I got back in the car and cried all the way back to the office. (laughs) Because I love Bubba too. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit that got me through that particular moment. Without the Holy Spirit, your message is nothing. There is no power at all. And that's what Paul's saying here. So my power didn't come from a speech class I had up back in Athens before I came over here. It came from the Holy Spirit. One more time, this is not an excuse to make teaching boring. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying the real power comes from God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's power came to Paul. It comes to me, and it comes to you. When you get nervous about presenting the gospel to somebody, realize that you're not there by yourself. The Holy Spirit's working through you. And the best part is the Holy Spirit's also working on the recipient of that message. Even if it's a one-on-one conversation, don't be intimidated. If you're nervous, that's fine. Paul was nervous, but worked through the nerves, realizing that there's something incredibly important to say. That's what's going on here. And in verse 5, Paul gives us a peek into this thinking. Why is his strategy this way? Well, the reason it's this way is, in verse 5, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He didn't want them believing in Jesus Christ solely based upon his eloquence. Because, watch, if that's the only thing, it's a very shallow foundation. They probably wouldn't have had actual faith anyway. And the next time another eloquent speaker came along with a different point of view, they'd have gone that way. So he says, there's more to this than simply eloquence. There's power. He's going to unpack this even more in in the coming chapters particularly the rest of chapter 2, where he's going to tell you and me that the whole idea of you sitting here this morning and listening to this, this is a spiritual transaction as well, and the Holy Spirit's involved in my preaching and your understanding. One thing I should say is that this doesn't mean that everything a preacher says is true. Sometimes the Holy Spirit has to work through a message that's got some flaws in it to bring out the truth, and that's what... He allows us to hear. I'll never forget. Sometimes people come and say, that was just incredible. That was incredible. I said, what was incredible? When you said this. And I'm thinking, that's not what I was emphasizing at all. But that's what the Holy Spirit was emphasizing to them. So I just stay back. I said, that's fantastic. That's fa- I'm glad God spoke to you that way this morning through that message. The Holy Spirit's incredible. And we should never short sale his role in the transaction of truth being ministered to from one person to another. Paul did not want people to be convinced by skillful rhetoric, but by the truth. Not by some clever slogan, but by the power of God. He didn't want to contribute to their cultural norm of valuing form over function, or rhetoric over truth. His was a powerful message, propelled by the Holy Spirit, delivered in humility by a servant of God.